Amen. Please be seated. Can I ask you please to remember um, John Ferguson as he uh, has to uh, recover? It's a bit like Ezekiel having to lie on his side. It's only for two weeks for John though, but he uh, does have to do that and he's not allowed to read, which I have every sympathy for him. That would drive me insane. Um, And also remember Dominic Smart who will be preaching here next Sunday morning. Uh, Many of you will know Dominic and you'll know as well that uh, he has cancer and he was very keen to uh, come and preach before he became unwell enough not to do so. So we look forward to having him. Also, if you're a man and you'd like to go to a men's curry night in Hillbank Evangelical Church, um, I'm speaking there this Tuesday and I've been told I can take two or three people with me for free. So if you'd like to come, you're very, very uh, welcome. Now we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 11. And this is on page 1137. Uh, In the book of Romans, one of the things that Paul has been doing is talking about the role of the Jewish people and how that in, in Rome... There were a number of Jews who believed and were part of the church, but there were many Jews who did not. And he's been answering the question, why don't they believe? And that has been part of uh, where we were with chapter 10, where he says his his heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites as they would be saved. And then we come into chapter 11, and this is one of the more controversial chapters in the Bible, which people have very different understandings about. I'm going to look at it in three parts. Part one will be this morning, part two will be uh, this evening, and part three will be next Sunday evening. And it is important for us to uh, understand what is said here. I think that we have to approach it, as we should all of Scripture, with a degree of reverence and humility. And we need, whilst we need to be aware of controversy that comes from these verses, as I've studied it, I'm, I'm not sure why there is so much controversy. And I think there's a great encouragement for us here as well. Um, you may not be Jewish. You may be blessed and you may be Jewish, which is, is fantastic. But this is, it, this is a word that is still for all of us. I think it's amazing how even in today's culture, I, just, I was thinking about that this week. I think every single week, uh, every single day, there was something about anti-Semitism in the news. And then uh, 25 years ago, the film Schindler's List uh, came out. And I well remember going to see that in Dundee and the impact that that had on people in the cinema. You know what it's like in the cinema. People start, you know... You, start crunching crisps. Why they sell crisps in cinema, I don't know. But anyway, and people crunch the crisps and they slurp and so on and you just get really irritated. And after about 30 minutes into that film, the cinema went silent for the next three hours. It's a long film. Just silent. Nobody said a word. Because what happened to the Jewish people within our lifetime, for many people anyway, for some people here, within their lifetime, was just absolutely horrendous. So I think this is a very uh, relevant thing for us. Now let me give a couple of caveats and a couple of warnings. There are people who think that the Jewish people do not need Jesus. 
they're still the chosen people. And by reason of being Jewish, they are saved. And there are some people who would, uh, at the extreme end of Christian Zionism, would say the Jewish people don't need Jesus. And that is not what the Bible says. In fact, that goes completely against what the Bible says. And it's the opposite of what Paul says here. Then there are those who go swing completely the other way, and they say the Jews are irrelevant. They say the Jews have rejected God, or the Jewish nation rejected God, and therefore God rejected them. And like Paul is being asked, are you saying that God is finished with the Jews? They would say, yes, yes, he has, and that the Jews have been replaced by the church. It's what some people call replacement theology. The trouble is, if you read the Bible... And as we read through Romans 11, that is clearly not what is said. That is unbiblical. The Jews have not been replaced by the church. So with those two caveats in mind, let's turn to Romans chapter 11 and let's read uh, just the first couple of verses. We're going to do verses 1 to 10 this morning. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, by the way, as we look through this chapter, Paul is going to make a prophecy about the Jewish people. Um, I doubt we'll get onto that this morning, so you'll have to come this evening for that. But for me, it's it's an amazing prophecy, and you see it being fulfilled in different ways. But he begins, first of all, by saying, well, has God rejected his people? And what he's doing, as he does in, in, as happens in so much of the New Testament, he quotes the Old Testament. Because Psalm 94 verse 14 says this, For the Lord will not reject his people, he will never forsake his inheritance. So Paul says, Did God, has God rejected the Jews? No. God can't reject his people. No, he hasn't. And he justifies that statement by saying, first of all, he said, I'm a Jew. What are you talking about? God has rejected the Jews. I'm a Jew. In fact, he, he says, look what kind of Jew I was. What was his name before he was Paul? He was Saul, named after King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul had a Jewish heritage that many Jews would have envied. Paul says, I'm a Jew. And he could have said, Peter's a Jew. And he could have said, James is a Jew. And he could have listed. And he could have said that every city he went to, including Rome and others, that what Paul would do is he would go to the synagogue first of all and he would tell the Jewish people about their Messiah, Jesus. And then, if they rejected that, he would go to the Gentiles. But God hasn't rejected his people, he said, because there are are Jewish people who believe in Jesus. And today there are many Jewish people who believe and trust in Jesus. And he uses another expression as well. He says, God didn't reject his people. God cannot reject his people whom he foreknew. And foreknowledge there is not just saying God knew about, but it's knowledge in the sense of loved. And he he hasn't rejected his people. Now, as I say, there's a balance that people need to get right in all of this. But you cannot read the Bible without realizing that God took the Jewish people and he blessed that one nation and he protected that one nation despite the the great forces against them. And he did that in order 
to bless the world. Abraham was chosen that the world would be blessed. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were not like other nations. God prepared them as a special people for himself. Now, that would have been a commonplace in the Scottish church for many, many years. It was just assumed that that was the case. People believed that. I remember uh, speaking to my own father-in-law, and I don't know if, he, if he'd ever met or knew any Jewish people, but for him it was obvious. He, he was from the island of Lewis, and he prayed for the Jewish people because the Jewish people were God's special people. And Paul is saying, that's what, exactly what he's saying here. He's saying God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. God's election, if you like, which we've been speaking about in chapter 9, means that the Jewish people have been preserved. It also means, by the way, that the church will be preserved as well. And I still think it is an astounding thing that with all the persecution that the Jewish people have experienced, that they still exist. There are many nations that no longer exist, many peoples that no longer exist, but the Jewish people do. And, and have you ever wondered this? Why are they so hated? People say, oh, no, they're not. No, they're not. Yes, they are. In every single, in every single age of the earth, people just, you just hate the Jews. Why? It's one nation, five million people, or maybe spread in different places. And there are all different reasons given. There are a lot of historical things. But I think the main, the main thing is this. There's, there's just an, an antagonism towards this, this nation whom God chose. Well, let's read on and see where Paul goes. Don't you know what Scripture says in the presence, uh, in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So what Paul is saying is, there are Jewish people who believe. Not the majority of people at all. There's a remnant. And we've been chosen by grace. Just as those of you Gentiles who have come to believe in Christ have been chosen by grace. He asks, did they stumble so that they couldn't recover at all? And he's saying, no, 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 you need to understand what is going on here. And he uses the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you'll find that in 1 Kings, which I want to turn to, uh, chapter 19, and we'll read, I think, from verses uh, 10. 1 Kings, chapter 19, and we'll read from verse 10. This is when Elijah had run away and he was hiding in a cave. He went into a cave and he spent the night there. The word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And so these very same Jewish people, your people, this is what they have done. They've killed your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, 
and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meheloh to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Now why does Paul cite that story? Because he's saying to the people who are asking this question, why don't the Jews believe? He's saying, ah, you don't see. You don't see the whole picture. In Elijah's day, Elijah thought he was the only one. Now, can, can, can you not empathize with him a little bit? That you go, well, I can, so this maybe tells you about me, my Messiah complex. But sometimes, I, I, you know, you sit and you think, am I the only one? You know, you might think at work, am I the only one? Am I the only one in my family? Am I the only one? And Elijah thought that. And he had plenty of good reason. He's hiding away in a cave, and they're trying to kill him. And he's saying, am I the only one? And God says, nope, what I want you to do is go and anoint this one king, go and anoint that one king, get this one as a prophet to come for you. And by the way, there are 7,000 of you who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But Elijah didn't know that. Elijah had misjudged the situation. And by the way, that means we need to be very, very careful in any analysis that we do. We, we, we sometimes think that we see things, but we see only a little and we need to be really careful before making pronouncements. I think another thing that we can take from this, by the way, is that Elijah made the mistake of thinking that the church was him and his responsibility. No, it wasn't. God works in amazing ways. Sometimes we see only our own circumstances. There's a saying, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. We might look at our culture, we might look at our society, we might say, this is so unfair, this is so unjust, this is so wrong, all this false teaching, look at the way that our country is going, look at the way that our society is, and there's a temptation to become cynical and to despair, even about the church, and God says, well, I know, and we need to remember it's his church, and we need to remember it's his purpose, and we need to remember that God knows what he's doing. So Paul says, There are a number of us who have been faithful both to our Jewish heritage and we follow Jesus Christ. In fact, James tells Paul in Jerusalem this, Acts 21.20, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. There is a remnant, he says, there's a pretty big remnant, saved by grace. Incidentally, this phrase, remnant saved by grace, this is the only place that it is used in 
the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you get the equivalent in 2 Kings 19.4. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. The idea of the remnant is very important in both the Old and in the New Testament, and they are there because of the grace of God. Those who sin are responsible for their sin. Those who are saved are saved by the grace of God. That's what Paul has been teaching in 9, 10, 11, in fact, in the whole of Romans. Now, again, I think there's a very simple practical lesson for us in this. There's a wrong kind of remnant mentality. And you know what it is? It's, it's Elijah in the cave. It's saying, I'm the only one left, or we're the only group left, and we just have to, you know, bunker down. And we need to just curl up. And I, think, I actually think the church in the United Kingdom... Uh, a lot of the church in the United Kingdom, the, the denomination I grew up in, the brethren, was very like that. We're the only people left, you know, and so we've we got to make sure we're pure and keep everyone out. But the trouble is we're sinners. We're all sinners, and that can go really, really wrong. It can happen in, in, in many different churches, and there's a danger in a church where you, uh, as we do here, where we believe the Bible and we apply the Bible, and we see the disaster that happens when churches go away from the Bible, there's a danger. We say, we've got to, we've got to close in, almost like a cult. We beca- can become like a cult. And that's the wrong kind of remnant mentality. That's the one that says, we've just got to hang on till Jesus comes. But Lloyd-Jones, I think, puts this very, very well. The right kind of remnant mentality is this, he says, being confident and sure of God's plan and purpose, we should exert our every effort to make the truth known and to persuade others to accept it and believe it. So Paul's desire was for the Israelites to come to know God, his own people. And he knew that it was a remnant, and he knew what the gospel was, but that didn't make him inward looking. That made him want to go to Spain. It made him want to come to Rome. That's why he's writing this. It made him be prepared to go to prison. He wasn't saying, let's hide away in a monastery and let's just wait for Jesus to come. He's saying, I believe this is so true. I want to tell everybody about it. There is then people who are rejected and there is the remnant. And I think we... Sometimes in our own culture today, we could say, well, how many people in Dundee today are going to churches? And, you know, are we the only ones left? And isn't a church in a terrible state in Scotland? And it is in a terrible state in Scotland. But God has his people and God has a remnant. And who knows where God is working? You know, don't think that God is just confined to working with us. I happened to be in a church yesterday um, I can never get the name right, the Redeemed Church of God or whatever. It's one of these churches with big, long names. Uh, and I was the only white person in that church, as I was, as I was saying earlier. I absolutely loved it. You know, I have different ways of doing things. Like, you don't have somebody stand up and announce the service is about to start. Someone just stands up and starts singing. And then the kids come up and start playing the drums. And then it's the most disorganized band I've ever seen in my life. But it worked brilliantly. It was great. And uh, I'll tell you this. You know, they, they weren't wanting any, give us one 40-minute talk and that's it. I had four hour-long talks to give. You know, too short, said the pastor. All right. Um, wear you out. But I just thought, it's lovely. 
basically most people were from Nigeria, and I thought, you know this, God has his people, and if God sends Nigerians here to bring the gospel, hallelujah for that. Great. You know, don't think that God is confined to us and to our church or to our particular group. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, God has his remnant. Just think of Elijah. God had his remnant. And as he, he goes on in the chapter, he'll talk about how that remnant is used to bring a great, a great blessing. The trouble sometimes with a remnant idea is people think, well, we're very, very small and we're always going to be very, very small. But the point about the remnant is it's designed to bring blessing, great blessing. And as long as God has people who are faithful to him and who believe what he says, the Lord will use that and will use those people to bring glory to his name. But he goes on to say this, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. We have the rejected. God has not rejected his people. We have the remnant. And then, not just for alliteration, but the recalcitrant. I love that word. Uh, in, in the dictionary definition, of it means people who are uncooperative, intractable, insubordinate, rebellious, willful, wayward, headstrong, self-willed, perverse, and difficult. So any parent here who's having trouble with your kids, just say, you recalcitrant child. And you know what you mean. And what God is, says here about his people is... They have rejected their heritage. Many have. So what Paul is, is teaching through the Holy Spirit. They've hardened themselves. He quotes Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 and Isaiah 29 verse 10. Isaiah 29 10 says this, The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, that is the prophets, and he has covered your heads, that is the seers. And Deuteronomy 29 says, But to this day... The Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. And I think this is an important word for us uh, in the church as well, because as that happened with the Jewish people, it also happens in the church as well. That people hear the word of the Lord, but they don't hear the word of the Lord. They don't understand the word of the Lord, and they turn away from God's word. Now, this is, by the way, this is not Paul being, like, super hard. This verse is quoted in every single gospel, and that's an indication of how important it is, by Jesus. So, for example, John 12, 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. What's going on there? What's this, what's this spirit of stupor? that's caused by it. It's a word that means the numbness that comes from stinging. So a bee stings you, there's a sting, there's a pain, and then there's a numbness that comes upon your hand. And it's used here to describe a complete loss of spiritual sensitivity, which comes when we reject God, and which God uses as judgment upon us. 
Now, as, you've got, as we've gone through Romans, this has been mentioned a couple of times. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It is not that God went and said, right, you want to worship me, I'm going to harden your heart. It's people who said, we're not going to glorify God. And what God does is he gives them over to what they wish and their hearts become hardened. Or Romans 9, 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. What is that hardening? And it's really important to grasp this. Hardening occurs when God leaves us to our own devices because sin always produces hardening and desensitizes us. I don't know if any of you like watching. Um, I, I absolutely love Inspector Morse. And I loved it so much that when they did a sequel, I thought sequels are never as good. So I didn't watch Lewis. And then my mother started watching it, and I started watching it, and realized, oh, Lewis is as good as Morse, if not better. And then they decided they were going to do a prequel, and I thought, nah, forget that. That's just really milking it, called Endeavor. And I absolutely love it. It's better than Morse. It's just, it's quite extraordinary. So I've been catching up with all this Endeavor stuff, and there was this remarkable scene, uh, I watched it uh, this week, where one of the officers, a uh, police officer called Thursday, I always love the names in this program, um, police officer called Fred Thursday, he's struggling with various things in his marriage, he needs money and all that kind of stuff, and his boss, who's a corrupt police officer, offers him a bribe, in effect, an envelope with money, take it, take it. And you can see the struggle. He is so reluctant to take it. He's sitting there at the table in this pub, and he's, no, I can't, no, I'm not going to take, no, I'm not. And then eventually he takes it, and his boss says to him, it's always difficult the first time, but after a few times, you'll not even notice. Because the first time he's taking it, he knows it's wrong. He knows it's a bribe. He knows it's corrupt money. Doesn't ask, but he still knows. He knows that he's being bought. And he really struggles. This is not what he's supposed to do. He's a police officer. He's, he's meant to uphold the law and all that kind of stuff. But once he's done it once, the second time is easier. The third time is easier. The fourth time is easier. Because that's what sin does. It hardens you. See to it, brothers, Hebrews 3.12 says, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Do you know this? You probably went one time and clicked on your computer and there was a bit of pornography and you knew you shouldn't do it and you watched it and you felt terrible and you felt really guilty. And you know, now you can do it and it doesn't bother you. The guilt gets over within five seconds. Why? Because you become hardened. But not just stuff like that. The first time you just did a wee juicy bit of gossip, you felt really bad. And you went home and you said, I'll never ever do that again. I wish I hadn't said that. And I, I repent of it. And you did and you did, except you didn't. And you know, now you've got into the habit that gossip is just so easy for you and bitterness is so easy for you. Or you come into church and you hear God's word and God really speaks to you through that word. 
but you, hard, you, you say, no, 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 you don't, you, you, you reject it, you reject it. And you feel really, really bad about reject it, and now you can come in, and boy, that's so easy, you can just do it. It's no problem. You know how to shut your ear to God's word. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying the Jewish people had this tremendous privilege, and he said, my own people, people who I would willingly be cursed for, they've rejected the Messiah who they're looking forward to. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And as we go on, and I, you, you will have to come tonight to see this. You can just read it yourself as well. But it, it's, Paul speaks to the Gentiles later in the chapter and says, don't you think you're any different from the Jews? The same thing that happened to the Jews happens to you. And I see, I, I think it's a pattern that occurs within the church all the time. It's so easy for us to become hardened. You know how the hardening works in another way? The first time you see a picture of a starving child, you're totally traumatized. You can hardly cope. But then you see another one and another one and another one and another one and another one. And now you can sit in front of your television and be stuffing your face, watching a child dying on the television. It doesn't affect you at all. It's just become entertainment because you become hardened. It's said of soldiers, the first time that they actually kill somebody, it's so traumatic. But the hundredth time, it's, not, it's not, no longer traumatic. And that's the same idea, the same picture that's here. And that's why the second quote is from Psalm 69, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. What had happened? Israel had become the persecutor. Their eyes were darkened and their backs were bent. Carrying the backs bent is a, it's a really powerful picture of a heavy load, whether it's the load of grief or fear or oppression. And notice the phrase, the table has become a snare to them. I will feast at the table spread for me. Yeah, but the table became a snare. What does that mean? We've been blessed with the gospel. We've been given the scriptures. But what if we've lost the spirit? What if this has just become so complacent for us? Are we not like the Jewish people who had the word of God but did not have Christ? Has the church not become like that? Lloyd-Jones is very strong on this, and I, I'm reading his, his commentaries on this, and I find them very helpful, or his sermons rather. He says, it is a terrible thing to say, but is it not true that the greatest hindrance to the true knowledge of God in Christ and salvation in this country today is the so-called Christian church? I believe that. I believe the biggest hindrance to the advance of the gospel in Scotland today is the church in general. And I, that's, that's an appalling thing. We can't blame the society. We can't blame the culture. You can't blame a secular society for doing what secular societies do. But the church, turn away from the gospel. You hear the word of God being read sometimes in churches and then the opposite being preached. Or perhaps just as bad, if not worse, you hear the word of God being read, the word of God being preached, and the people of God, no. So what? We just go away. That's it. We don't care. And the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, if you like, because of us. 
They have become a snare. The table has become a snare. Their eyes darken, they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. You know, maybe what God needs to do with us is to soften our hearts because we have become hardened. The Lord's people can become hardened. We can become hardened in sin. We can become deeply cynical. I have seen a man stand in this pulpit and preach a fantastic sermon whilst at the same time he was committing adultery and breaking the law of God. It was one of the most distressing and disturbing things I've ever experienced in my life. How could that be done? It was such a great sermon. Because your heart gets hard. Because you can act. Because you can be a hypocrite. And God says, no. No, you're not doing that with my word and you're not doing that with me. God can raise up out of these stones children for Abraham. He doesn't need us. It's by his grace that we are here, not because we are good people, not because we are better than other people. If you ever ever have the attitude, I am better than other people around me, you haven't grasped what Christianity is. You're not better than anybody else, and neither am I. In fact, the more Christian we become, the more we become like Paul, who towards the end of his life says, I am the chief of sinners, not I was. I am. And we need to be careful that... We don't harden ourselves by treating the Word of God with contempt and by not seeking Christ. Is it not true the greatest hindrance to the true knowledge of God in Christ and salvation in this country today is the so-called Christian church? Well, we pray, and it's a dangerous prayer to pray, but we pray that God would soften our hearts and that He would show us where we have need of repentance Revival and renewal begins with the church. But I want to finish with verse, just back at the beginning of verse 7. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. Now, what Paul's saying is the nation of Israel didn't obtain this, but the elect within the nation of Israel did. They sought so earnestly. Why did they not obtain it? Surely Scripture says, if you seek you will find. Ah, but what are you seeking? I um, am reminded of uh, a debate I had with Peter Tatchell one time, who if I was taking him at his word, and I did take him at his word, he was somebody who was looking for justice and for um, community and for lots and lots of different things. Um, And I, I said to him at the time, Peter, what you are looking for is great, but you won't get it in that way because you're looking for it out with God and that cannot happen and it does not happen. And I think that's very similar to here that the Israelites were people who, they, they wanted lots of things but they left out God, they left out Christ. They were not seeking in the right way. What they were doing was they were trusting to their own religion, they were trusting to the fact we are As Paul would say, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. And later on, he came to realize after he became a Christian, that was just dung to him. Relying on these things, relying on your works, relying on your religion does not save you. You need to understand from God's word and God's law that you are broken, that you are sinful, and that you cannot heal yourself, and that Jesus came to die for us, and that you need Jesus, and you need to trust in Christ alone, and it is by faith alone. 
That's what all of Romans has been about so far. Paul's saying the, the Romans, the Gentiles, the, the Jewish Romans, all saved only by faith in Christ alone. They sought earnestly, but they did not seek uh, properly because they were not seeking Christ. And I, I, I will say that to you, you what, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. This message, this passage is saying to us, if you seek for all these good things, even if you seek for God, but out with Christ, you won't find him. You won't receive. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see. You cannot save yourself. You cannot work things up in your you cannot be religious enough to deserve heaven. You cannot be good enough to go to heaven. All that you can do is trust in the Christ who died for you and gave himself for you. There is no hope without Jesus, but there is hope with Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need to grasp and understand that. You need to seek Christ. But if you are a Christian, you need to be very wary of the hardening that comes on your heart because you hear the gospel again and again and again and again and again, and you become kind of immune to it. And you need to pray that the Lord will, will soften your heart to see again the beauty and the love of Christ. But also, maybe you're a Christian here, and to be honest, you've kind of given up because you're aware of the spirit, you're aware of the hardness, you're aware of the deadness. You're a bit like a drug addict who's conscious that they are a drug addict and who has no hope. And just, just guilt upon guilt upon guilt, and then just this deadness and deadness and the lethargy and the spiritual lethargy. And you've, you've even given up praying, Lord, renew and revive me, because you just don't believe that that will happen. But Jesus saves, and Jesus keeps. And here's the extraordinary thing. Maybe God uses this word for you to say, no, there's still hope. You can come back. You can return. You're not the only one. There are many many others. God in His grace is calling you. God is pleading with you. And I would encourage each one of us not to turn away from the grace and mercy of God, not to trust in our heritage or our previous experience or our goodness or our gifts or whatever we have done, but just simply to say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross, I cling. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you that in your providence and mercy in this world, you had this great plan that you would save Abraham and that you would save Isaac and Jacob, and from them would come this tiny nation of Israel, and through Israel you would give your word, and through Israel your Messiah would come. We bless you for the Jewish people. And we ask our God that your hand would be upon them. As we read in your word, if, if their turning away from you has brought great blessing to us, how much more will their turning back to you? And we pray that the Jewish people would come to know their Messiah.
And we pray for us, O oh Lord, those of us who um, are not Jews, at least in the flesh, but those of us, O oh Lord, who've come to know you and who are part of your church, and yet we can so identify with the people of Israel who turned away from you, who grew hard, who ended up rejecting the word. Lord, forgive us when we have done that. And we pray that those of us here who have hardened hearts, that you would melt them, that you would break them, that you would remold and shape, that we may live for Jesus. And we ask our God for any who do not know you, that they would turn to you and see in Christ a beauty and a hope and a joy and a peace that cannot be obtained anywhere else. Lord, deliver us from religion, deliver us from self, deliver us from sin, for we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing the song, There is a Hope, um, which kind of describes that. And as I said, I hope this evening to uh, look at the second